Welcome to Global Dispatches, a podcast for the international affairs, foreign policy, and global development community, and world news aficionados of all stripes. I'm your host, Mark Leon Goldberg, editor of UN Dispatch. Enjoy the show. As I am recording this, Israeli forces are bombarding Gaza with artillery fire. This latest escalation in fighting comes after another night of rocket attacks fired from Gaza into Israel. The situation is deteriorating in ways, sadly, that we have seen before. But what distinguishes this latest iteration of the Arab-Israeli conflict is that violence is spreading within Israel. Over the last several days, there have been multiple incidents of mob attacks between Jews and Arabs in towns in Israel with mixed populations between Palestinian citizens of Israel and Jews. The threat of widespread communal violence is now very acute. On the line with me to help me understand the events leading up to this latest conflict is Donna L. Kurd. She is an assistant professor at the Doha Institute for Graduate Studies and is a researcher at the Arab Institute for Research and Policy Studies. We kick off discussing how an attempt to evict Palestinian families from their homes in the Sheikh Jarrah neighborhood of Jerusalem sparked uniquely widespread protests by Palestinian citizens of Israel. She then explains how and why this crisis escalated so quickly and where it may be headed next. In this conversation, we make reference to a piece she wrote in the Washington Post, and I will be sure to include the link in the show notes of this episode. And you can always head over to globaldispatchespodcast.com to access the show notes as well. Needless to say, the situation in Palestine and Israel is rapidly evolving, But this conversation, I do think, will give you the context you need to understand these events as they unfold in the coming days and weeks. As always, please feel free to reach out to me directly if you have suggestions for me of people I should interview or topics I should cover. You are a fantastic audience of global affairs professionals and doers and thinkers, and I always appreciate your suggestions. Hit me up on Twitter at Mark L. Goldberg, or you can send me an email using the contact button on globaldispatchespodcast.com. Now, here is my conversation with Donna L. Kurd. Looking for a trustworthy podcast to bring you unfiltered viewpoints and experiences on global health? Tune into Global Health Matters, the podcast that connects silos and amplifies diverse voices to give you a holistic picture. Each month, Dr. Gary Aslanian from the World Health Organization hosts discussions with guests spanning former ministers of health, award-winning journalists and authors, and frontline public health workers. Join listeners from across 180 countries for an exciting Season 4, launching in June. Global Health Matters is available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and YouTube. Sheikh Jarrah is a neighborhood in the eastern part of Jerusalem. It 
was invaded in 1967, so it's now under Israeli occupation. The western part of the city was taken in 1948, and in 1967, these neighborhoods were also uh, subsumed under Israeli occupation. And Sheikh Jarrah um, is kind of a very strategic neighborhood uh, in terms of its location. Sheikh Jarrah particularly and Silwan and Wadi Joz, so these kind of different neighborhoods that ring the old city, um, they have had severe settlement activity, unlike in other places where it's like they kind of bulldoze land or seize land and then build on top of it. Um, in these places, they're going house by house. The idea is that they can establish basically geographic control and cut off um, Jerusalem entirely from its Arab population. Um, and they've done this, you know, uh, in a couple of different ways by either like pushing Arab neighborhoods of Jerusalem out of the you know Jerusalem proper, um, quote unquote, by using the separation wall, or by doing things like this, um, you know, going house to house and trying to push Palestinians out. Essentially, the the issue is that there are eight families, who um, a settler organization called uh, Nahalat Shimon targeted. Uh, this this organization is based in the U.S. Um, it targeted their homes uh, for like a land dispute. And a home, dis like a home ownership dispute case in the Israeli court system, mm -hmm. um, and essentially there are they're alleging that these homes belonged to um, Jewish families before 1948. Um, but most of these families not only either have deeds preceding the state, or they bought the land and you know built the homes themselves following their original 1948 expulsion. So, like for example, the Al Kurd family, no relation, by the way, just a. You okay. Know, a distant, you know, a great. I was going to ask um, that because, uh, you know, the, this this young man uh, was named Mohammed Al Kurd has been sort of a spokesperson yeah. for this cause. So yeah. good, thank you for clarifying that. Yeah, Mohammed Al Kurd and uh, Mona Al Kurd, his uh, his younger sister, have mm -hmm. uh, been. I mean, I guess we'll get to it later in the in the yeah. podcast, but um, they've been amazing on social media. But um, so essentially, like we, <laughs> uh, their branch of the family was in Haifa, mm -hmm. um, and um. They so just as an example of the eight families, so the their their uh, grandmother their grandparents were expelled in 1948. They uh, um, found themselves in East Jerusalem, and with coordination, like through coordination with UNRWA, uh, the UNRWA um, refugee organization, and um, and the Jordanian authorities at the time, they what they did was they gave up their refugee status to be able to purchase land mm. and to build their homes and just try to resettle you know, and hope that they don't get displaced again. As you mentioned earlier, it has been like a longstanding practice of the Israeli government, at least this current iteration, this kind of right-wing Israeli government, to seek to expropriate Palestinian land around Jerusalem. Why has like this incident, the Sheikh Jarrah and the potential um, expropriation of these eight families been such like a, a spark bigger than we have seen in times past, it seems? Yeah. Um, so, I mean, Sheikh Jarrah, honestly, it's been ongoing. I mean, the first time Mohammed Al-Kurd, because you mentioned him, he came on to kind of like, you know, global attention was in 2009 when he wrote a letter to Obama. So like the first time that half of his home was seized. Um, so it's been ongoing. However, why this happened now, why this has been such a spark now is because one, these kids are grown. They're using social media very effectively. Mohammed Al-Kurd, before he was on Twitter, him and his sister were on Instagram. They're like highly effective. 
Um, they know how to like get the word out. Other people also like not just them, but like other activists um, have been using social media like Instagram and Instagram stories and TikTok and things like this to to bring attention to this. But also there was kind of a perfect storm of antagonization, um, I think, at this moment in time. First, there was um, the Israeli authorities, like the security, the, the Israeli security and border police that, um, uh, you know, polices East Jerusalem. Um inexplicably banned Palestinians from uh, gathering in public spaces during Ramadan. Um, so that was that caused, you know, ongoing tension. Aside from Sheikh Jarrah, every every night almost in the old city, we would see videos of Palestinians being arrested for simply sitting or like food carts being overturned and things like this. So that really agitated people. It became kind of like a, um, a meeting point for like people who wanted to challenge the occupation and like you know, show defiance. So even, you know, we had Palestinian citizens from within the green line, Palestinian citizens of Israel were coming to sit in, in front of um, Damascus Gate in front of the old city to kind of challenge um, and say like, no, we're allowed to sit in these public spaces. So they're they're antagonizing on that end. The Sheikh Jarrah protesters, the families are calling on people to protest with them and sit in with them. There's an upcoming court date um, and they're using social media quite effectively. So they're, agi- you know, they're agitating and antagonizing Palestinians in Sheikh Jarrah and people who are following that closely. And then there's also the right-wing provocations. I mean, the whole the whole government is right-wing, but like particularly like these organizations like Lehava and like these um, kind of like extremists that marched through the city and like, um, mm-hmm. you know, shouted death to Arabs and tried to beat people up. So all of this is happening in, in a very short time span, one after the other. With the Sheikh Jarrah protesters and, and very validly, validly are saying, um, you know, on social media and like in their calls for people to come and join them, we are a symptom of what will happen to you. If Sheikh Jarrah falls, Silwan mm. and Wadi Joz and all of these places will also fall. And the fact that the Israeli authorities were, you know, were, you know, upsetting people in all of these different ways at the same time, like, lent, you know, lent legitimacy to this argument, which is, of course, I mean, not, I, I do believe it's a valid argument, but, you know, it, it really... Um, uh, sparked urgency in people because it's like on all of these fronts we're being attacked for all the reasons you just described Sheikh Jarrah seems to like be this kind of perfect storm of mm-hmm. antagonizations um but things seem to have escalated just so quickly i mean we are recording this on thursday you know by the time this is published there may be a israeli ground incursion in gaza uh, mm-hmm. For all we know, that that's sort of the latest news is that that is, is very much a real possibility. How did this escalate just so quickly in such a short period of time? Yeah, so the final kind of like domino to fall um, was the planned Jerusalem Day marches. Jerusalem Day is on um, uh, May 11th, and um, this you know, celebrates Israel's conquest of the eastern part of the city in 1967, where, you know, marchers, like quite extremists, oftentimes will march through Arab parts of the city. Um, Palestinians have to close their doors or like not open, you know, their businesses. There's often skirmishes and like attacks and things like this. So in this, you know, the backdrop of this entire Ramadan has been this, you know, antagonizing, you know, incidents. And then Jerusalem Day is, is planned activists on the ground have have um, kind of gotten a little bit of momentum. People are joining. Uh, it's not just a few people. It's like a lot of people are coming in and like um, joining these protests and sit-ins. And so the Palestinians vowed that this Jerusalem Day March was not going to happen because it culminates in 
um, the marchers going to the Al-Aqsa compound, which is a sacred place, um, and like, you know, marching through it, essentially. Um, so they refused. And so they wanted to um, like basically do a sit-in at the Aqsa compound and like barricaded the doors. And we saw basically like a day, like a, like a day long battle. Um, maybe battle is not the right word because it was, you know, one side was armed and one side was not, but um, you know, a day long struggle uh, where from the beginning, like from, you know, Fajr prayer, like five in the morning, I remember, cause I was, I had pulled an all nighter. You had this like perfect storm where you had Palestinians staging a sit-in and, and, and sort of trying to prevent these Jewish extremists from marching through the streets in the same kind of contested area that contains the Western wall and the Al-Aqsa mosque. And then you had these like wild scenes of like flashbang grenades and tear gas tearing through the Al-Aqsa mosque. And then later in the evening, you had these wild scenes of these like kind of Jewish nationalists um, kind of dancing and praying at the Western wall with kind of smoke from the mosque in the background. It was like breathtaking in a, in a terrible way. Um yeah. And then you have rockets being fired by Hamas into Israel well, and Israeli well actually, rockets being fired back into Gaza. Like how, how did that domino fall? So, yeah, so it actually happened the same day. Um, hmm. So the Palestinians got the march to be rerouted so that they would not pass through the Damascus gate and they would go from a different uh, um, entry point to the Western wall so that they don't go through and like, get into skirmishes with people essentially. So they they succeeded. They succeeded in their sit-in. They succeeded in getting the the march rerouted. Then um there were I mean, you know, I'm not uh an expert necessarily on Hamas and its internal decision making. But the the argument goes that there was still a threat that the Israeli authorities would go back and reattack the people sitting in the Aqsa. And Hamas um basically made an ultimatum like i think it was like at by 6 p.m like uh you know they would they would uh, launch a rocket attack and they did um i you know personally i didn't quite understand that decision making process mm-hmm. but but the rockets that was funny. i was going to ask you about that yeah. that the strategic logic of hamas there i mean at least to me I, like it doesn't make sense but um from like perhaps the point of view of hamas if you're seeking to provoke an israeli response uh and you see political gain in provoking that israeli response then you would want to do something like this i mean there's you know there's the people who say you know there's one element of palestinian society one element of palestinian public opinion that says like hamas parachuted itself to try to gain legitimacy in this moment or like mm. make themselves relevant. Another, uh, you know, not insignificant part of, I mean, we don't have any polling, but just from mm-hmm. anecdotal evidence, I'm sure there will be polling in, in June that's that's set to happen. So I'm sure we'll have a question on this. But um, for now, anecdotally, I could see that there's a, another segment of Palestinian public opinion that says, uh, well, no, they needed to raise the cost. They needed to raise the cost of what Israel was doing mm. um, so that Israel does thinks twice about this kind of, repression i mean i'm not going to adjudicate that necessarily but it yeah i'm not a strategic thinker and and one thing you know i I learned from reading your piece in the washington post is that to a large degree hamas and the palestinian authority were irrelevant to the protests at sheikh jarrah it was like uh organic and um had nothing really to do with the palestinian authority or hamas or kind of established you know palestinian political systems 
Oh yeah, the, the polit- political part. So like the Palestinian Authority, um, which uh, is dominated by Fatah, like you know, was really quite irrelevant. In fact, like we had these funny videos coming out of um, the Aqsa compound, like before and after the the you know the day long struggle uh, on Jerusalem Day, um, where people are like, you know, cursing uh, the the Palestinian president and saying like, you know. Uh, uh, nice of you to like wake up and nice of you to like, you know, say something. I mean, completely irrelevant, really. The Sheikh Jarrah families weren't asking, you know, also to some, just to note, the Palestinian Authority is not allowed to function in Jerusalem. Mm-hmm. But even, you know, the political parties like Fatah and Hamas, like they're not responsible at all for the the organization of those sit-ins, how they escalated, why the protests became, uh, you know, kind of a ground swelling of support, how the Palestinian citizens of Israel joined. They were, they did not, you know, they had nothing to do with calling for these things. They had nothing to do with organizing these things. Like I said, completely irrelevant. The families in Sheikh Jarrah were not calling on either political party. Mm-hmm. Um, now, not to say that there weren't people at the Al-Aqsa compound that day where they fought off the um, Israeli uh, occupation forces. It's not that, like, I'm not saying that maybe some of them didn't support Hamas. I'm, mm-hmm. I'm, not, you know, I'm sure there are Fatah, Fatah supporters and Hamas supporters present. Um, but it's not their doing. You know, this was mm-hmm. quite an organic you know, moment of, of anger. Um, that helps, like, I think people understand why one might uh, say that Hamas was trying to parachute themselves into this situation, insert themselves into something in which previously they, you know, were, were, were irrelevant. Yeah, I mean, that, that's one explanation. Um, some people have said, I mean, some people on the ground have said, some people, um, yeah, I mean, mm-hmm. it doesn't, I mean, if Hamas is going to insert itself in this moment, um, you know, the Palestinian citizens of Israel, like that complicates their involvement mm-hmm. because they're citizens of Israel. Like, what does it mean that they're joining protests where, you know what I mean? So, you know, on that level, um, it complicates things. Um, but then others say like, you know, you don't know, like some people called for them to get involved and wanted them to raise the, raise the stakes, mm-hmm. you know? So I, you know, I can't really, I would have to wait until like public opinion comes out. Even public opinion is really quite um, problematic because it's like a, you know, just a, a point in time, people's mm-hmm. like anger showing in a public poll, necess- you know, not necessarily like the reason that things happen. So um, I can't really say why Hamas did what they did, but that's why um, the rockets were launched. And then Israel, with, you know, within a few hours had retaliated yeah. with airstrikes, killing in the first night, I think 12 people, three children. And then now I don't even know the death toll. To a large extent, it seems that like we've seen this movie before. Uh, where you have, you know, Netanyahu, who is politically on the ropes uh, to an extent he hadn't been in a long time, um, kind of perhaps seized this moment of of kind of right wing anger uh, over something happening, you know, in Jerusalem or in uh, the occupied territories or West Bank, somehow like, you know, seized upon it. Um, fomented this crisis. You've had um, violent response by Hamas, violent response by Israeli, uh, by the IDF and the Israeli army. Like we've seen this a a few times. What to me at least distinguishes this moment are levels of communal violence that we're now seeing in areas throughout Israel in which there are large mixed populations between Arabs and and Jews. Um, How do you explain sort of that current iteration of, of what's happening now, which seems really almost like dystopian and, and terrible in a way yeah. that we haven't seen before. Yeah. So I think before we get to the levels of violence we've seen in the last couple of days within the green line, like within, you know, 1948 Israel, um, 
one thing was unprecedented before this moment, which is the level of uh, support and participation from Palestinian citizens of Israel in the West Bank, uh, sorry, in the East Jerusalem protests. So they were coming to Damascus Gate. They were coming to Sheikh Jarrah. They were, you know, there was this amazing moment where busloads of Palestinian citizens of Israel were trying to come to Al-Aqsa to pray in solidarity and were stopped by the police for no for no reason given. So they started to walk on the highway. And then the Jerusalemites <laughs> drove their cars, blocked the other side of the highway so that they could pick them up. And just to emphasize, in general, we have not seen this level of participation in these kinds of political moments of, of activism by Israeli Palestinians or Pal- uh, Palestinian citizens of Israel before is what yeah, you're saying. I mean- I mean, like, obviously, like during the first, uh, sorry, during the second intifada, like we have moments where there's solidarity protests, they pay heavily, you know, there are people who die in those solidarity protests, but to this degree, um, Mm. it's, it was, it was, um, we haven't seen it in decades, let's just say so. So that was what was happening. Then the Hamas rockets, uh, sorry, then the Jerusalem day struggle, the Hamas rockets, the airstrikes on Gaza that are very indiscriminate that really angers people, Palestinian citizens of Israel start to protest in their own cities, like cities we have not seen show protests, again, in decades, are now protesting. They're raising Palestinian flags, in some cases, like, you know, there's like burned cop cars and things like this. So I think the response, I mean, the response really alarmed, not only the Israeli state, but like Israeli, you know, citizens who, um, either have this sense that there's coexistence, you know, the liberal, you know, element of society that thinks, oh, this everything's fine here. It's just the occupation that's the problem. And then there, it also alarmed the people who thought these people were thoroughly dominated, when clearly they were not. Mm-hmm. When clearly there's still some element of of solidarity with, not just some element. They, they clearly, um, sorry for for stuttering, but the they 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 clearly see that their circumstances of uh, repression and discrimination within Israel are intimately tied to Israel's character and Israel's continued occupation of the West Bank and East Jerusalem. So um, that was quite alarming, I think, to the Israeli public of all of its elements. And then we saw the mobs um, that we saw in the last uh, day or two. I can't, you know, Mm -hmm. time kind of blends together now. Yeah, I mean, this is obviously a very fast-moving situation, but as we're speaking now, there seems to be this kind of cycle of mob violence uh, that is taking hold in areas, as you said, of Israel, where just like we hadn't previously seen this kind of thing happen before. And to the point where, you know, I think an Israeli official even, you know, threatened that this could, you know, descend into a civil war of sorts uh, befalling I Israel. Would- yeah, I just wouldn't. Um, I would push back on the term civil war because there was definitely um, there was definitely you know like Palestinian protests and some of them kind of had like a riot element. Like you know these these terms can be kind of yeah um, overlapping in some places. So like not every city had you know property destruction, but some did. And then there were some instances of like the I can't remember which city, but the uh, there was a synagogue that was torched. So there were definitely elements of violence. Um, when the Palestinians protested. But the difference is that it's not a civil war because Palestinians don't have any um, you know, defense. They don't, they don't have any military weaponry. They don't have a military representing them. What we saw when the, when the Israeli marchers, when the Israeli riots happened in response, like the next day, 
um, in in Haifa, in uh, Thire, in um, uh, south of Tel Aviv, Betiam, all of these places, like the cops, the, the Israeli police, the Israeli authorities were either not intervening or participating. I guess there, there's a lot of uncertainty, uh, obviously, uh, in terms of how this crisis will play out over the coming you know, days and, and weeks. But are there any like inflection points that you'll be looking towards that will suggest to you um, how this conflict, this crisis will proceed? Uh, that's a that's a tough one. Honestly, I'm, um, you know, I, I'm at the risk of sounding unprofessional, like, you know, I study this, but I also have family there. And this has been like, I'm just trying to keep up, you know, with with some of the some of the things that have been happening. But in terms of like, you know, what I'm concerned about, or like what I'm going to be looking for is now Netanyahu has announced, or the Israeli government has announced that there will be administrative detention um, used against Palestinians um, who protest in, in inside Israel. This is a tactic that's used in the West Bank and the occupied territories generally, um, where you can be detained indefinitely without charge, and people get and and like it keeps it keeps uh, it keeps people off the streets and like in prisons and things like this. And this hasn't been used against. Um, Palestinian citizens of Israel uh, since the the lifting of the you know military rule on their on their uh, cities, but now it's 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 going to be used. That strikes me as like if they go through with that, if they redeploy the Israeli defense forces to um, Palestinian towns within the Green Line, it strikes me like that that would indicate that there's going to be much greater repression. So like the the Israeli authority is. Sorry, the Israeli government is not, um, you know, trying to cool things down necessarily. You know, there we might see more violence. Now, on on that's that on that front, on the uh, Jerusalem front, um, I do worry about um, you know the the settlers in those neighborhoods, which often um, they use violence against the families, and if. You know, the, the court date was like delayed like by a month or something as we near the court date again, you know, what could happen in those in, in that space um, might have ramifications for for uh, um, the the rest of, you know, the unrest. And then in Gaza, if they do decide to go through with a ground invasion, we're going to see we're going to see like, you know, harsher violence like we saw um, when they attacked on uh, on the ground in I think 2014 of the Shijaiya and stuff like this, and mm-hmm. and uh, it's going to be become much more in uh, kind of an intractable uh, um, affair. I don't know and, if that's and the right word. And possibly more internationalized at that point, which is what happened kind of last time there was a ground invasion. Yeah, perhaps, but I mean, internationalized. I mean, you, I mean, I don't know. I. We we didn't see much out of the the Biden statement. Um, there's not there's not really anything happening on the international front that has that can even slightly change Israeli behavior. Mm-hmm. There is you know some of those some of the some of the statements from Congress and things like this, but it's um, you know congressional members, not all yeah. Congress. But but I don't I don't I don't know that the international front is going to change Israel's behavior. I think that there's going to be a lot more in, in internal pressure, if you know what I mean. Like mm. they're going to have to contend with multiple fronts at this point. And even by the way, like we haven't spoken about West Bank, like the West Bank, there are um, 
you know, escalations and violence in some of these camps. They're they're conducting arrest raids in major Palestinian cities in the West Bank. And so, you know, um, I don't know what what that means, but the PA doesn't look very good right now. People are very angry. You know, this this is you know yet another nail in the coffin. I don't know how many nails it's going they're they're going to be able to sustain. Um, but but yeah, I don't know if that was a good answer to your question. It's just a lot of moving parts. Uh, well, yeah, it is a lot of moving parts, but but you helped me understand many of them. Thank you, Donna. Yeah, no worries. Thanks. All right. Thank you all for listening. Thank you to Donna L. Kurd. And as I mentioned at the outset, of course, this is a fast evolving situation, but I did appreciate her perspective on the context and background uh, that led to this latest sad conflagration. All right. We'll see you next time. Bye.